We're in Hebrews chapter 2 this evening, turning to a new section here, beginning at verse 11. We'll be looking at specifically verses 11 through 13, though we'll read for the sake of context, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through verses 22. Did I say Hebrews about six times? Did I say Hebrews? Thank you, brother. The question is, do I know what I mean? If I said it that many times, who knows where we're headed with this sermon? It's all in the notes, friends. Just don't get off the notes. Ephesians 2, 11 to 13. But before we read, I, I want to say this. So we set the text up. The world that we live in is filled with animosity. It cries out for harmony. People are at each other's throats. There's racial hatred, national hatred. There's condescension. There's terrible things like genocide. Who doesn't want to sing the old Coca-Cola ditty? Dating myself, I know. I'd like to teach the world. Well, I'd like to build the world a home and furnish it with love, grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. I'd like to hold it in my arms and keep it company. I'd like to see the world for once all standing hand in hand and hear them echo through the hills for peace throughout the land. We say that we'd like to see that happen. Interestingly, we find it hard to live that ourselves very well at home and among our neighbors and at work. Some have said, well, the problem in the world with its hostility is religion. Muslims and Hindus, Buddhists and Jews and Christians not getting along. Ironically, however, the last hundred years or more has proved that getting rid of religion and belief in God doesn't clear things up. In the secular atheist nations of communist countries that supposedly stand outside of religion, claim not to believe in God, some of the worst atrocities of human violence known in history have been committed, even against fellow citizens in places like like, uh, Cambodia. China, the old Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, North Korea today. No doubt, Christians have done and said terrible things over the course of the last 2,000 years. No doubt. No doubt the church has its history of wrongdoing, of persecutions and such. And as Christians, we don't have to pretend or try to sanitize our history. We can even apologize for our family. But the answer to the problem of human hatred won't be found in atheism. The problem is rooted in us, in our hearts. And the answer is found in God and what only he can do for us. In that light, I want you to hear Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning at verse 11. Therefore, remember 
that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. By the Spirit. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's look to Him in prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we know that we are lost in this Word without You. And I am wrong in my thoughts and words apart from You. I pray that You would restrain my mouth. You would grant that the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in Your sight. O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer pray that you would show Jesus to us, help us to understand, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Paul wants us to see the big picture in Ephesians, and you have to go back to chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 to see the big picture. This fits into that picture. The big picture he's been talking about is this, that God is going to unite, God has actually shown us the mystery, he's unveiled the mystery, that he's going to unite All things in Christ, all things that are broken and fragmented, he's going to fix. And Jesus is Lord and master over all, a regenerated, renewed creation. And as soon as you see that, you recognize that there are obstacles in the way of that happening. There are three, we've looked at two, but by way of reminder, one of them is what? One of the obstacles to... God reconciling all things in Christ is the dominion of darkness and the prince of the power of the air, as he's described earlier in this book. We have found ourselves in bondage to the powers of darkness. And the work of Christ is he enters the battlefield on our behalf. 
And he goes into the domain of darkness, the enemy-occupied territory, as it were. And he overcomes the powers of darkness, and he rises from the grave, and God places him as head over all things, and places all things under his feet, so that those powers are no longer an obstacle. But there's a second obstacle. We saw it in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. That obstacle is us, our own depravity. We are, he says, chapter 2, dead in our trespasses, and we were enslaved by our desires. And what does God do? God, in his regenerating power, he raises us to spiritual life out of spiritual death. He causes us to be freed in order to walk in newness of life. But there's a third obstacle to Christ reconciling all things in him. And that obstacle is division in human society. The division between Jew and Gentile, that was the great divide in their day. But the division, the things that divide us, race and nationality and custom and all sorts of things. And what God is doing is he is saying this, I'm not just trying to save a whole bunch of individuals out there and make them happy in me, though he does that. And eternally happy in a way you've never even begun to know. But he's not just saving individuals out there by giving them life in Christ, chapter 2, 1 to 10. He's actually doing more than that. He is saving a bunch of people into a new humanity. He's forming a new body, a new family. Out of two, he makes one new man, the apostle says. In other words... God's intention in reconciling all things under Christ is the church. Chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, that's what he's talking about. Now we're going to look at just the first three verses there, 11 to 13. Our focus will be the problem tonight, and we'll just begin to look at the solution that God brings. The problem is the antagonism of the Jews to the Gentiles, the alienation of the Gentiles from God's people, and the answer is the achievement of Christ. And so three things tonight. The antagonism, the alienation, and the achievement. Okay, verse 11, what am I talking about? The antagonism. He reminds them of this historic antagonism between Jew and Gentile when he starts out by saying, remember that at one time you Gentiles after the flesh, and oh, by the way, the, there were the, there were the uh, circumcised and the uncircumcised, and he begins to remind them of the fact that the Jews used to despise the Gentiles, called them dogs. Here he calls, he says, they called you the uncircumcision. And you remember that circumcision was given to, given to Abraham to be applied to his male descendants as a sign of membership in God's covenant people. The Jews were circumcised. The Gentiles, they called foreskin. Now, I know that offended you, some of you. But you have to understand, it's at least that bad what they meant by it and did with it, it's at least as bad as the worst racial slur. It'd be, it'd be like using the N-word in our day. 
And Paul, by the way, isn't using it in a derogatory manner. That's not how he's using it. But he's reminding them that this is the case. This was the situation. This was the hostility between Jew and Gentile. There's a lot of baggage here in the early church in a way that maybe you haven't felt. I understand. God had revealed himself in history primarily to the Jews. He had called the nation of Israel then to be a light to the nations, but they hadn't been. He'd given them a mark on their body of the covenant relationship. And the tragedy was that Israel forgot her calling, twisted the privilege into favoritism, thinking they were favored in that way, and ended up despising and detesting the heathen as dogs. William Barclay, who's not always reliable, but his history is oftentimes so, he says, as he looks at it, he says this, the Gentiles said to the Jews that they were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. It was one of their expressions. It wasn't lawful for a Jew to render help to a Gentile mother in the hour of her sorest need, For that would be simply to bring another Gentile into the world. You know, we can't have that. You know, if if a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl or a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out by the family. Such contact with a Gentile was equivalent to death. Do you see see what I'm saying here? You can see how this would have been problematic in the early church. Even though maybe they've both come to Christ. You've got Jewish Christians with this long history. and Now you've got these Gentile Christians with no history. How do you help these people get along when there's been this, this in their heart, this maybe lifelong buildup? How do you help them see That in Christ they are one new community, a new kind of nation, a transnational, multi-ethnic community made one together in Christ. And how do you help them live together in that new community when there's all this animosity? And Paul says, remember how it used to be, but he isn't one-sided about it. He doesn't just say, now Gentiles, you remember what they called you. He then says, well, the Jews really have nothing to boast about. The Jews I'm talking about, they're just outwardly and in the flesh circumcised. But they're not, they're not spiritually the way that they need to be in the heart circumcised. In other words, they put all this stock in the outward form and it made them proud and self-righteous and contemptuous. This is what we are and you're not us. And Paul puts them on the same level playing field. Jew and Gentile. Because he's saying here, basically, as he says elsewhere, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters at all. What matters is faith in Christ. What matters is what's going on in the heart. That the spiritual reality of what physical circumcision stood for is actually going on in your heart. Your hearts need to be circumcised. Moses told them in Deuteronomy. Your heart needs to be changed so that you believe in the Messiah. That's your hope of salvation. And so, listen, I want to say here, this isn't our context uh, for many of us, I assume. But it is important for us to reflect as baptized Christians on this issue. Because like the Jew of old, we could get hung up here and be awfully wrong. 
you know baptism is now the sign that marks us as part of the covenant community of God. It sets us apart from the world. And we might be tempted to say to ourselves, well, we're baptized Christians. Well, we might be saying to ourselves, well, we're table-eating Christians. We've got the sacraments. We do these things. But we may not have the reality of trusting Jesus to save us, which is what matters. And that's a, this passage is a reminder to us. The privileges of these Jews be, became corrupt in them. And it's a reminder to us of the danger of that happening among us. You know, growing up in the church, being raised by Christians, being baptized, living among the people of God, and yet, and you're not trusting Jesus to save you. So Paul reminds them of this historic antagonism between Jew and Gentile. Yet he does so in a way that reminds both of them that what matters is faith in Christ. And what he's doing is he is undercutting Racial pride, nationalistic pride, religious superiority based on performance. Oh, were you circumcised on the eighth day? Paul could say, I got it on the eighth day. My parents were that righteous. And then Paul will say in Philippians, but I pile that up like dung and I run from it as fast as I can to be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that's based on the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus. So he's undercutting our pride, our religious works and observance and whatever sacraments we've had applied to us or even take tonight and reminding us it's about faith in Jesus, trusting him. So he reminds them of this historic antagonism, but then he also says, and you Gentiles, you were in a worse position than the Jew. You, you were alienated from the believing community. And look at all the things that he says you were alienated from. In verse 12, he, he reminds them of all these things. It's not a pretty picture. There are five things. Briefly, he says, you were, remember verse 12, that you were at that, that time, you were separated from Christ. That's the first thing. In other words, you were without the Messiah. Gentile mothers didn't name their sons, you know, like mothers in Israel did. Gentile mothers didn't name their sons Joshua or in the Greek Jesus because it means the Lord saved and because they had the hope that someday the Lord was going to send the Savior and it just might be their boy. But plenty of Jewish mothers did that. They didn't have that hope. The, the Gentile Christians couldn't sing the Christmas Advent songs. They didn't have the hope to sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. They couldn't sing, O come thou rod of Jesse, David's father. O come thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. They they, they didn't sing those songs. They didn't have that hope. They didn't have the benefit of that redemption either, what what that redeemer would do. They didn't know that he would fulfill the law for them, that he would suffer the penalty of the law for them, that they would be atoned and drawn into the presence of God through his work. They didn't have access to God through the redeemer. 
through the Messiah. They were without the Messiah. The second thing is this, notice again the language here. They were also alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. He's, he's saying they were foreigners dwelling, even if they lived in, in Jerusalem, they were foreigners dwelling in the land who might pay taxes, but they had, had little legal standing, few rights at all. They weren't citizens of Israel. They didn't belong among the people of God. And more than that, third thing, they were strangers to the covenants of promise. What's he talking about here? You remember that God had promised what to Abraham? That I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be a God to you and to your children after you and to their children after them. And so then God, in order to affirm that and reaffirm that and persuade us that he was really going to be true to his promise, even though he promised it, he entered into a whole series of covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David, all designed to reassure us he would be faithful to his promise of mercy. The Gentiles never received those assurances. The book that taught those covenants of promise belonged to the Jews, the Old Testament. The promises were made. They were without hope. One of my University of Arkansas friends, a former student, posted on Facebook just this week. He said, he quoted a prof, the world, this is an economics professor, the world is a horrible place and we're all going to get crushed and die. And nobody cares about you. But we lie to ourselves and make ourselves feel important or whatever. That's the economics professor in class. How, how hopeless. And that was the condition here. And fifthly, they were without God. The problem, of course, wasn't that the Gentiles had no God. But they didn't have the true God of Israel. The true and one and only everlasting God and creator. They were idolaters. They worshipped and served a whole variety of gods. You know, the, the pantheon of Greek gods. The seventh wonder of the ancient world. The temple of Artemis or, or Diana. Here in Ephesus, it was massive, 450 feet by 225 foot structure building. One of the great wonders of the ancient world. It was a temple for worship to a false god. But you know, friends, whether you ever went into a place like that and bowed down before some statue, you know that you too are an idolater. We're all idolaters of heart. Calvin said it, I think, very well. Our hearts are a perpetual factory of idols. We're always coming up with someone to love and something to love that isn't God supremely. Right? We want something. We love something. We want someone. We love someone. And it isn't him. We're idolaters. And and Paul is saying, (laughs) this was all you, you Gentiles, and so he says, don't, don't forget that. There are some things you should forget, like the injuries others do to you. And that's hard to do. But there are some things you should never forget. And that is what you were when God's love reached down to you and rescued you. You used to be all these things. You used to have, you used to have none of them. You were without Christ. You were, without, you were an alien. You were a stranger to the covenant. You were without God. You were without hope. And now he says, but you know what? Now you have all that. 
Notice the language of verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're going to stop there tonight, so we're just going to get a taste of it. But you know the rest of the passage. He answers all these deprivations with what Jesus has provided for us. But now it reads, God did what? He changed the situation. He brought you to himself and he brought you together with the Jews and he brought you near, he says. And it's passive voice, grammarians. It means you were brought near. You didn't bring yourself near. You're not the active agent here. It was done for you in Christ and it was accomplished through the blood of Christ and it was applied to you by the Spirit of God and all the blessings you enjoy are because of God's grace. Once you were dead, but God made you alive, Ephesians 2 verse 5. Once you were alienated, far off, but God brought you near. But now God brought you near, he says. Do you see that? It's the language, this language of far off and near is the language of physical proximity to indicate a spiritual reality. What are we saying? Well, among the Jews, God dwelt among his people, first in a tent that traveled with them and then in more permanent structure, the temple. Those who lived near to the temple were the Jews. They were near to God, but those who were far off were the Gentiles. That's a picture of a spiritual reality. The encampment of God in the midst of the camp of his people showed this in a physical way. His people dwelt around him, near to him. We're near to him, they said to themselves. The Gentiles are far off. They live far from God, not close. Now listen, but you say, but I mean, how is this possible? God is infinite. He's everywhere present. I mean, isn't he near to everybody? And of course, the answer to that is, well, yes, he is. Acts chapter 17, in him we live and move and have our being. But it's this, friends. It's not that God is far, but it's that we are far from God. And there's a difference. We left him when Adam was in the garden and walked with God in the cool of the day, but then said to God, I don't want you Get away from me. Because I don't want to live in your house. And I don't want the stuff you provided because it hasn't been quite enough. And Adam said, get away from me. It wasn't God who said that. Adam said, I want to live as I please and do as I do. And I don't want you to be my father. And the father, with a reluctant heart and a sad heart, gave Adam what he asked for. That's the story of the prodigal son, isn't it? The the son in that story. You remember this famous story of Jesus. The son says to the father, I really wish you were dead. Because then I could have my inheritance and live as I please. The father with a broken heart gives him what he asks for. And the son goes out. And what does he do? He squanders the wealth. He lives in filth. He's reduced to eating the slop of pigs. And when he comes to his senses, he says, I'll go home and I'll tell my father I'm not worthy to be called his child. But if he'll let me live like one of his slaves, at least I'll get to eat, he thinks to himself. And what does the father do in that story? The father, whose heart has always been for that son, 
whose heart has always been near to the sun, sees him a long way off and does what no respectable Middle Eastern gentleman would ever do. He pulls up his robes, he exposes his legs, he runs right down through the middle of town, runs out to his son who is still a long way off and he throws his arms around his neck and he says, I love you. And he brings him home and he throws a party And he celebrates, this son of mine was lost, but now he's found. This is the story of the Bible. Why did the father do that in that story? Because the father's heart was near to the son when the son's heart was far from the father. And that's the story of the Bible. The proud, circumcised Jews became the older son who stayed home in that story. And the Gentiles were the prodigals who left home, and yet the father's heart was for them both. And though the older brother didn't go look for the prodigal younger son, as any loving brother ought to have, it was his place in his family to do it, yet God our father sent Jesus our elder brother to find us, rescue us, bring us home, bring us near to the Father. And how has he done that? How are we brought near to God? Look at the end of verse 13. By the blood of Christ. That's how, friends. Why does it have to be through the blood? Because God is loving and God is holy. It's his holiness that repels evil and his justice demands it receive judgment For there to be true peace. And in love, he created the way to get us at great cost to himself. I read an interesting story about a Friday afternoon in 2012 about a series of tornadoes that tore through a town of Henryville, Indiana. A woman named Stephanie Decker was at home with her two young children, a son and a daughter. And they were huddled in the basement as the tornado headed for her home just before the storm hit. She covered her children with a blanket to shield them from the debris. Then she reached around them, held them, adding her own body to the protection over them. And as the the storm devastated her house and sent a wave after wave of debris into her body, beams, pillars, furniture slammed into her body, seven ribs were broken. Two steel beams fell on her legs, almost completely severing them. There was a calm, followed by another storm roaring through the home. And again, she took the brunt of the debris in her body. She would survive that storm, but lose both her legs. And her two children emerged without a scratch. She absorbed the fury of the storm in her body. And rescued her children. Jesus is that woman. And his two children are named Jew and Gentile. And through the blood he brings us near to God. That's the language of temple sacrifice. He freely, voluntarily, willingly gives himself to be crushed in our place. 
When the people brought animal sacrifices to the temple, they, they confessed their sins over the animal, and then that animal went off and got slaughtered, and death went away from them. Judgment fell on the animal in their place, and that could never take away the sin of a human being, the moral sins and failures of us. But it was a picture of bearing away that sin and bearing away the judgment it deserves. And now the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has come and he makes it safe for us to be near God. It's the achievement of the cross, friends, that accomplishes our reconciliation to God. But it does one other thing. It accomplishes our reconciliation to one another. And this is what heals the division of humanity. How does the cross overcome the obstacles of people not getting along? One of the ways it does it is this. It produces the necessary humility. But it also produces the necessary unity. It produces the necessary unity, the humility. How does it do that? Though the most vile hatred ever bursting forth from people manifested in itself by those people against the one on the cross unworthy of that hatred, the Lord Jesus Christ. He saves us. Jew and Gentile despised him. Romans condemned him. The Jews condemned him. The religious condemned him. The unreligious condemned him. Men men condemned him. Women condemned him. Children, boys and girls scorned him, mocked him. But it was our sins, friends. It was our sins that killed him. The worst violence you have ever done, you did to Jesus. And you put him to death. And so you can look, Jew or Gentile, who believes in Jesus in the eye and say, I know just what you did. I did it too. It brings the necessary humility, but it also brings the crossroads, it brings the necessary unity. Being brought near to God by the blood of Christ is to be brought near to everyone else who's brought near to God. We're united to each other because we're united to Christ and he united us to himself and he united us to each other. And this is the basis on which he could say in Ephesians 4 verse 3 when he gets to his application it tells you what to do. He says, May, be eager to maintain the unity. He doesn't say be eager to establish unity, to make unity, but to maintain unity that already exists. And why does it exist? Because it's already been established and it was established when Christ made one new humanity out of two. So his achievement, it kills our antagonism towards others and it removes our alienation. From God and others. Let's pray. Father in heaven, do all this for us in Christ and may peace and love and reconciliation abound in our hearts. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand and we'll sing two stanzas of Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners.